Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. Today, a granddaughter's divided loyalties. Poet and writer Rita Gabis grew up surrounded by grandparents with accents, Russian, Yiddish, Lithuanian. That makes it sound like a familiar Jewish immigrant story, but it wasn't that. Gabis's father came from a family of Russian Jews who immigrated to the United States well before World War II. Her mother was born in Lithuania. She and her family immigrated in the 50s, and they were Catholic. As a child, Gabis was vaguely aware that these two different family backgrounds were somewhat at odds with each other. It was only in the past few years, though, that she came to understand that the divide went much deeper and that her mother's father, her beloved Sinalis, as she called him, had been the chief of security police under the Gestapo in a Lithuanian town where two massacres took place. In a new book, Rita Gabis chronicles her travels to Lithuania, Poland, and Israel, where she gathered documents and witness testimony to make sense of her family's past. The book is called A Guest at the Shooter's Banquet, and we're delighted to have her with us today to talk about it. Rita Gabis, welcome to Box Tablet. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Before we get into the search for information on your grandfather's actions during the war, I wonder if you could give us a sense of your upbringing. Did the two sides of your family spend a lot of time together? Were they equally a part of your childhood? Actually, um, the matriarch of my family uh, was my Jewish grandmother, Rachel Trigoop Gabus, and she was the dominant force uh, in in our family unit and and also in my life. The two sides of our family, um, the Lithuanian Catholic side and the Jewish side, actually rarely um, intermingled. And as I say in the book, for many years, I thought that was a simple issue of geography because my Jewish, the Jewish side of my family lived east in the East Coast, and ultimately the Lithuanian Catholic side of my family moved to the Midwest. So um, my Jewish grandmother ended up settling on Mar- the island of Martha's Vineyard, and um, my family, too, would spend summers there. And for for a week or two weeks during the summer— some members of the Lithuanian side of my family, including my Lithuanian grandfather, Sinalis, would come and visit. And then sometimes we would go over the Christmas holidays to my Lithuanian Catholic family um, in the Midwest. But there was not a lot of overlap. What was your grandfather, your mother's father, known as Sinalis, which means grandfather in Lithuanian? Right. What was he like? So... um you know, it's interesting because I remember him as a very large man, and and he was in his youth. I have a lot of pictures of him, but um, interestingly enough, when I went back and looked at some of the photographs um, that were current to my, say, late childhood and early early adolescence, he was already growing older, and he wasn't as big as he seemed to me um, when I was a child, but he was... Um, in in some strange way, he was like my Jewish grandmother in that he took up a lot of space in the room. He was a very joyful man. He was extremely loving to us. Um, he was a nationalist. Um, he, there were many conversations with my mother and her sister where I remember him banging his fist on the kitchen table. And I would ask, well, what's he talking about? And it would all be about Lithuania and um, who uh, the true rulers of Lithuania should be, and the Russian incursion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, 
he was loud, he was joyful, he was opinionated, and he, he loved me, and I loved him. So he loomed in your life as this heroic figure. Right. At some point, that shifted, and you embarked on this search in this book. What was the shift? What began to create a question in your mind that maybe he wasn't only heroic? Well, that's a complicated question, because as in, I think, in all our families, there are silences, there are secrets, and if we begin to um, walk through the doors of those silences, often our reasons for doing so are multi-determined. Um, years before I began work on my book, I was in a book club with the writer Daniel Mendelssohn. He was leading it, and we were reading The Odyssey. And at the same time, he was working on his wonderful book, The Lost. And um, after our our talk, you know, this wonderful group of of readers and writers about the Odyssey and and Daniel would kind of lead us through it. We would all have dinner, and I remember um, there was one dinner uh, at the end of the of the meal. Daniel was talking about his latest research, and he said the Lithuanians were the worst um, because, of course, his book was about um, you know the decimation of Eastern European Jewry, and I just had this image of both my grandfather and then of myself. And I could literally feel myself kind of turning aside and, and you know, in a very inchoate way, recognizing that there was something there, but I wasn't ready to look at it. Um, I think the death of my father uh, had a lot to do with the, the questioning process that began for me. Um my mother's story, uh, her war story, as it turned out, um, was somewhat embellished. How so? Um, you know, first let me just say, I mean, she certainly, she was a child um, during World War II, and her mother, she lost her mother at quite a young age. She was, um, her mother, my, my Lithuanian grandmother, Babita, was swept up during Stalin's purges, arrested, taken to Lubyanka prison, tortured, and then sent to a prison camp in Siberia. Um, so certainly she had her share of um, of trauma to deal with. But a story stories had been communicated to my Jewish grandmother that, for instance, as they were fleeing the country into Germany, my mother, my grandfather, and my mother's siblings had ended up in Dachau briefly. That turned out to not be true. Um, at one point, I, I recalled a conversation with my Jewish grandmother where she said, when she said, you know, it's terrible what the Germans did to your mother. And I said, well, what was that? And she mentioned something about the soldiers in the hayloft and implied that my mom had been raped. And at a certain point, I asked my mom about that. And she said, well, it wasn't true. But those embellishments, I started to ask myself, you know, why magnify a story that's already horrific enough? And then finally, I have a beautiful adopted stepdaughter from a country where it's very difficult to find out information about your birth parents. And after the death of my father, I thought to myself, if I have questions about uh, my mother's side of the family, I have to ask them now. So I did. You tell two unforgettable stories back to back toward the beginning of your book. And the stories convey some of the underlying tension between these two parts of your identity. I wonder if you would be so kind as to read them for us. Absolutely. 
So um, just as a lead in, uh, in this first bit that I'm going to read from the book, uh, the, the kind of key figure is my Jewish grandmother, Rachel Triku Gabus. Okay. I was raised in a secular household, yet when asked what I was, I always responded Jewish. Technically, I was not. My father had married a non-Jew. However, my Jewish grandmother, Rachel Trigub Gabus, believed her will and wishes superseded rabbinical law and conveyed to me her notion of how I was to think of myself. She made her pronouncement the summer I was 12 on Martha's Vineyard, where she lived the last half of her life and where, along with my parents, various aunts and uncles spent parts of each summer. It was a hot day, and I was hanging out by the side of the local movie theater on the corner of Circuit Avenue and Oak Bluffs. A new poster was up advertising a movie I wanted to see. What was it? Jaws comes to mind, but probably it was another movie. The sun was bright with that salty white glare that only happens near the ocean. I was wearing a tiny gold-plated cross around my neck that I'd bought at the town drugstore because my summer girlfriends in Oak Bluffs mainly Polish Catholic daughters of plumbers and rooming house owners, all wore them. Absorbed in the movie poster, at first I didn't see my grandmother drive up in her used gold Impala. Ignoring the traffic, she put her car in park, threw open her door, and made it to the curb where I stood before I could completely register the fact of her. She reached for me, tore the little necklace with a cross off my neck, and threw it on the sidewalk. I never want to see such a thing on your neck again, she said. I looked down at my ruined necklace and then back up at her red face. She was always fiery, loving, dominating, but I'd never seen her so angry before. You're Jewish, she spat, then turned, jumped back into the Impala, and sped away. Um, so that was one message that I got in my family, and then... You know, around the same time frame, um, my Lithuanian grandfather, my Sinalis, was visiting, and he gave me another message. He never learned to read English very well. To my dear son-in-law, the front of a birthday card might say, inside it, a worn-out $5 bill, his uncertain handwriting. But he had said other things to me when I was young, that I was not to be like my father, an admonition that caused me enormous distress until I could make out from my grandfather's stumbling grammar that he wanted me to be a Catholic. I was eight or nine at the time. It was summer again, Oak Bluffs again. My grandfather had been drinking. We were alone on the scruffy side porch of my family's rambling house, built by a sea captain who designed the interior beams to be curved like those of a ship. Sinalis's eyes were round and glassy. I'd begun to recognize the appearance of that sheen as well as a haranguing repetitiousness that came over him and connect them to his beer breath or a half-empty bottle of too sweet wine. His English always got worse when he was drunk. No be like your father, Sinella said. Why? What was wrong with my father? Jews no good, he explained. I remember being both confused and relieved. It wasn't my father completely, the whole man who Sinellis thought was bad, only one part of him. I had no idea why Sinellis felt that way. I promised him I'd go to church knowing that I wouldn't. I knew also that I would never tell my father what Sinellis said. 
it's just mind-boggling the messages that you got from both sides of your family. I mean, and at such a small age that you were basically asked to absorb this message that kind of implies both hate part of yourself and love part of yourself. Right. But I think my Jewish grandmother was all-embracing, and I guess I would say lucky for me, she was really my model in the family. Um, I left home quite young, but she was really the person who was in my corner uh, throughout my whole young adulthood and going forward. So uh, her words actually helped me tremendously. And I was so young when my grandfather said that to me that it wasn't until much later that I really began to understand um, the depth of the anti-Semitism in his comment and uh, the split that it was creating inside of me. Let's talk a little bit specifically about what he did. Uh, when did you first discover that he had worked for the SS? So um, first, I just want to go back to your opening comment. Yes. So Sventionis is a town. It's also a region. Lithuania is very confusing. And it's a region that was prior to the Russian uh, occupation, which predated the German occupation, part of Poland. The Russians came in. They delivered most of the region to Belarus. When the Germans came in, they delivered the entire region to the Lithuanians, and it remains part of Lithuania today. My grandfather was chief of security police for the entire region. Um, he was based in the town of Svencionis, but his reach was actually far, you know, greater than that. Broader, yeah. Um, you know, I sat down with my mother one day, and uh, uh, as I had said, there were there were questions I had, and I I knew that he had been a partisan. I knew the family myth, and for the first time, I stepped forward, and I said to her, "What did he actually do during the war?" Um, and she said, "Well, he, all she said was he was in the police," and I said. You mean under the SS? And she said, yes. Um, and at the time, I just remember thinking to myself, it has taken me so many years to get to this point and to ask this question. Much of my book is, in some ways, I call it a, a study of my ignorance, um, ignorance that became knowledge, but it kind of tracks my own silence as the child of these two different cultures. But that's how I first learned that he'd had this position. So then you embarked on this journey, this right. investigation. What did he right. or did he not do? Right. What did you think you were looking for as you underwent that? In some ways, I wonder, I guess, were you looking for evidence that he wasn't uh, as bad as you could imagine he might have been? I was looking for both. I mean, I, the, the first, when my mother said this to me, I was sitting across from her in this cafe, and I felt like, you know, um, I'd been slammed against a wall. It, the feeling was so visceral. It was in, it, it, there was nothing intellectual about it. The thought that kept coming to me was, did he do anyone harm? And I have to find that out. And obviously, my hope was that he had not. My hunch was that he might have. I didn't know what I was going to find. I had no idea 
that there would be any information about him. Um, I had no idea that I was going to write this book. This, this, was, this was not something I embarked upon so that I could write a book about it. Um, it became a book almost by happenstance. Uh, so it was a very personal journey in the beginning for me. And um, I did not expect to find uh, the paper trail that I did and certainly didn't expect to embark on the extensive journey that I ended up embarking on. He was the chief of the security police in that area, uh, Svencionis. Svencionis, thank you, from 1941 to 1943. What did you learn happened in that area at that time? So the first two um, incidents that I learned about before I knew anything about what role he may or may not have played in both of them was that in September of 1941, uh, 8,000 Jews all the Jews of the region, except for those who were considered useful Jews or who had been able to bribe their way to, you know, the relative safety of a ghetto, 8,000 Jews were rounded up, taken by carts, marched uh, to a place in Novosvencionis called Polygon. Novosvencionis is a railroad town about seven kilometers away from Svencionis, where my grandfather's um, office in the police station actually was. They were taken to Polygon, which in Polish just means officers' barracks. It used to be a stable and shooting ground for Polish soldiers. They were shoved into stables, makeshift barracks. They were kept there for a period of several days. And then with the help of uh, hundreds of locals, they were taken 50 at a time 40 at a time by truck to a pit and shot. So that was the first event that I learned about. The second event was um, an action against non-combatant Poles in the region. Um, for various reasons, in 1942, in the spring, the Lithuanians unleashed their wrath against the Polish population and... Um, Many of the Poles, I think at least a thousand, upwards of a thousand non-combatant Poles, many of them elderly people, were rounded up and they were shot. So these were two incidents of mass killings. The Polish um, massacre, actually, you know, we don't know about it here in the U.S., but in Poland, it's considered to be, um, aside from the killing of the Jews, one of the major war crimes against non-combatants. What exactly did you learn about your grandfather's role in all of this? Well, if I tell you, I'll go to the last chapter of the book. So let me just say that the journey to find out was long and that uh, one of the things I tried to do was double and triple source all of my information because one could say, well, here he was, chief of the security police. In Lithuanian, it's the word is Saugumas, and they were one of the most notorious collaborationist forces in Lithuania. So I could know that. I could look at the distance between where my grandfather's office was in the police station and where the massacre at Polygon took place, and I could say, well, of course he was there. And I really tried to prevent myself from making suppositions and from using proximity as a way of getting at some truth. Um, so it took me a very long time to 
find out what I was able to find out about his role. Um, I was fortunate enough to, in the fourth year of my research, through a very circuitous route, find uh, the last living eyewitnesses and near eyewitnesses to the massacre. And they helped corroborate some information for me. Let me ask you a little bit about that. Why in looking into um, your grandfather's involvement uh, in the war, did you feel also compelled to tell the stories of these Jewish uh, survivors and of other eyewitnesses in the area? Well, one of the reasons is that I, you, you can't go back and investigate someone's criminality or lack thereof in a wartime setting unless you understand what that setting was. Um, it was also very important for me to uh, pull from anonymity those people who might have been in some way harmed by my grandfather. And uh, one of the people whose journeys I track is Yitzhak Arad, who um, is a wonderful historian. Uh, he lives in Israel. He was, I think, chairman of education at Yad Vashem for 25 years. And he was an amazing source of information. And certainly his story as a, as a very young boy is an incredible story of survival. Um, so partially it was these amazing stories of these young people, and I was completely compelled by them. And they also were able to give me a sense of place and time. If you do this kind of work, you have to kind of find your way back. Um, otherwise, there's no way to understand the complexities of the region, um, what it might have been like for someone like my grandfather in the middle of it. Uh, so that's one reason. Um and then, of course, I was hoping that someone might be able to say, yes, I remember Pranus Peronis, and yes, I remember he did thus and so or did not do thus and so. Did it make you or has it made you think differently about your grandfather? Has yes. it changed your memories of him? Yes. I mean, I I see him now as someone who was perhaps the ultimate pragmatist. Um, he came to this country, he made a life for himself, he saw that there was opportunity for his children, and, you know, I've been asked uh, why he didn't protest more when my mother married a Jew, and in fact, he did say to her, you should have married a Lithuanian. Um, but I'm sure he also, a practical man, a man who had survived the war, thought, well, she'll be taken care of whatever children she has, will have a stable home. So I began to see him less as the kind of joyful, carefree, um, loving man, and more as someone who was calculating and someone who was um, entirely wedded to his nationalism. And uh, it's very interesting. One of the people who helped me greatly with this book is a as a very well-known historian, Arunas Bubnis in Lithuania, and he said to me, a genuine nationalist hates everyone. And there's some truth to that. But as as his daughter, my mother's sister, said um, at the end of one of the my early interviews uh, with my mother and her sister, the Jews were his scapegoats. And I, I have come to understand that that was indeed true. 
Mm-hmm. What did your mother make of this project? So um, my mother was alternately very helpful and also very scared, as one can imagine. This is her father, and here's her grown daughter really going about the business of dismantling the myth of this man. Um, So it's been quite painful for her. And um, there were periods of time when we were not in contact. Early on, I made a pact with her, and I told her that I would not share any of the information that I came upon about her father unless she asked me. And she did not ask me. Um, Although um, I recently, in late spring, did an interview uh, for C-SPAN Book TV, And she asked to watch it with me. And we sat down and we watched it together. And afterwards, she hugged me and said, I'm proud of you, which was an amazing moment and a brave moment for her. You're also a poet. And I wonder, while you were doing this uh, research and engaged in this investigation and becoming so intimate, really, with so many atrocities uh, and horrors and traumas, Were there particular verses that comforted you, and what were they? You know, the the work of Abraham Sutskever has been enormously important to me. Um, He's one of the young Vilna poets and um, wrote these amazing poems, actually, while he was in the ghetto there and then after um, and also uh, the poetry of Szczesław Milos, the Polish poet, who has written beautifully about um, the Warsaw Ghetto and the destruction of the ghetto. And that work was, um, it was sustaining. Rita Gabis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Rita Gabus is the author of A Guest at the Shooter's Banquet. It's out now from Bloomsbury. Go get yourself a copy. Listeners, I say this every time, and I mean it every time. Please let your friends know about Vox Tablet and encourage them to subscribe on iTunes or on any other podcast browsers. That way they will never miss an episode and nor shall you. If you like Vox Tablet, we also ask you to please write a review on iTunes. That helps us get more listeners. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. We thank you so much for listening.